Some of my best ideas happen in the shower, and I know that you understand what I'm thinking about, and I bring this up because my signature course, Fitness Coach Academy, I thought of it literally in the shower, and it wasn't clear, it was very blurry, but it got me thinking. I talk a lot about the million dollar idea, the million dollar course, the million dollar, whatever that is, right? How to bring it to fruition. And I wanted to have an open dialogue with another coach and colleague and friend who has done the same exact thing. So this podcast, I'm bringing in my friend, Sam Miller, who created FNMS. I've taken that course myself. It's phenomenal. And we are just having an open dialogue about how to actually build and create a million dollar course idea, right? As you're scaling your business, many of you may decide to go the assistant coach route, but a lot of you are going to decide that you want to create a signature course, a high ticket course. And I'm talking about something that is between the 5K and 20K mark, right? And that takes a lot of skill. It takes a lot of build out and thought process and, you know, unique framework identification and so even team building. So Sam and I are having an open discussion on creating these ideas, going back and forth between FCA and FNMS, how we came up with the ideas, how we've scaled them and taken them evergreen, and how both of these coaching programs have made us millions. Hey y'all, I'm Taylor DeHaze, a seven-figure business consultant and strategist for online fitness coaches wanting to build life-changing companies. Real talk, I wasn't an overnight success and that would make for a pretty boring story. I was fired from my TV reporting career of a decade with just $825 to my name. In just two years, I built a seven-figure coaching business. Now I'm sharing my proven strategies with you. Oh, and we'll keep it real, discussing mindset, money, and hardship to help you build the life of your dreams. So grab a cup of coffee and get cozy. Welcome to the Taylor Hayes podcast. I'm so glad you're here. All right, Sam, I'm stoked to have this conversation with you because we were chatting before this got started, but every time I've worked with you or I've seen you featured on something, it's always about, you know, your knowledge, functional coaching. And so I think it'll be really cool to have this open dialogue about course build out and really creating, taking a million dollar idea and bringing it to life. And I know you do some business mentoring yourself, but I mean, do you ever find that some of the coaches you work with, they have a really hard time executing these big ideas? Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, you commented on something earlier that I think was really well put. It's just so many people think that in order to scale, they just like have to do business coaching, right? Or they have to do something like that. And the execution part is huge because some people are struggling even in like a one-to-one setting or a very like high intimacy format with execution. And I think the idea of having a course or having some sort of flagship offer becomes incredibly appealing. But if you haven't mastered certain points of execution and like customer activation within your business, you're going to really struggle regardless of the actual delivery mechanism um, of the offer or transformation. So it's something that behind the scenes, I've really enjoyed learning about and also kind of retooling within our own business, but it's not something I get to talk about a ton. So uh, when you sent over the idea for today's show, I was super excited because I know it's something we've both spent a lot of time on over the past few years, kind of taking an idea and then turning that into action or execution, like you mentioned, and then even being able to talk to other people who maybe have aspirations of building their own sort of flagship program course or you know, kind of a spinoff on whatever their coaching method is. Yep. And so, you know, Sam and I are going to 
just have, like I said, an open chat uh, and sharing two different perspectives, two different courses, right? So we're going to be talking about FNMS. We're going to be talking about Fitness Coach Academy um, and just how we've both created these or taken million dollar ideas and turned them into really successful programs that have helped, you know, hundreds, potentially thousands, right? And so I want to just ask you, you know, what were you doing like when you created the idea for FNMS, right? Like what, what was going through your head? Obviously you started out doing one-to-one -one coaching, but how did you come up with this course idea? So I'll kind of rewind a little bit, probably to five years or so ago, um, maybe even a little bit more. Almost feel like that turned into a Will Smith when he's like doing the intro for Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, where he's like, there once was a story, like going all the way back. But what was interesting is in my one-on-one -on -one coaching journey, I actually had an increased, like increasing proportion or volume of people on my client roster who were actually health professionals, right? They were either nutrition coaches, fitness coaches, personal trainers, and they were mainly hiring me for either their own health issues, potentially, uh, or maybe they didn't even have a health issue, but they wanted coaching. And then they'd sometimes ask me questions about their clients, right? So it was like, I knew that there was a need that I was serving and a problem that I was solving, but my offer was limited in its capacity to actually provide that mentorship that people were looking for. So one-on-one -on -one nutrition coaching kind of pivoted initially into mentorship. And then that mentorship pivoted into what amounted to be about a dozen people uh, in this offer that I had created related to some of the core concepts that people would ask me about, whether that was thyroid health or low testosterone or re women's reproductive health, um, you know, PCOS, other sort of advanced cases that people would encounter because I noticed, I was like, okay, wait, more than 50% of my client roster are like health professionals. But what I'm charging for here is like a coaching service of, you know, doing your nutrition or training or something. But here on the other hand, uh, most of the people are then leveraging that time to gather other information or resources that they're then using in their own business. Right. So it's like, I right now I'm selling B2C or business to consumer, but people are really desiring more of this like B2B interaction, right? Like actually helping them inside their business with their clients. So I wish I could say that I sort of just woke up one day and had this idea for what's now the functional nutrition and metabolism specialization inside of metabolism school, but I really didn't necessarily. It was more like the prop, like seeing the problem in the marketplace and what people were doing, looking at consumer behavior and how they were consuming my services really gave me a lot of insight into what was needed. And then in sort of getting to that place of an initial pilot or like beta round of the group or kind of running like an initial version or iteration, kind of plan A, I spent probably about a month just doing a lot of coaching and consulting calls where I would have coaches would call in with like their difficult client case or whatever they were stuck on or roadblock or obstacle. And I would essentially just help them. Uh, and a lot of those were free initially too, just to create uh, one kind of viability in the offer and understand that there was demand for it. And then also have a bit of social proof attached to it as well. So really the way the program has grown and to what it is today, it really started as just, you know, a lot of times it's just like making a little bit of a productive pivot and then like a little bit of another pivot and then like fine tune and retool and optimize and kind of learn from your current experiences to be able to create like the ultimate offer that you have uh, in the present moment. So for me, it really all started with coaching and then transitioned more into mentorship. And then it was like, okay, but there needs to be more to the offer here in order for it to be valuable and actually accomplish the transformation that I was accomplishing if I were working with someone one-on-one, -on -one, right? So when you have 
that one-on-one coaching or mentorship with a coach. Then when you begin to add more information or you begin to add more people to a group and you can't have that same hands-on like daily interaction, how do I still create this, a similar quality of experience or transfer the same value or information in that condensed or collapsed time horizon? And that's really where, you know, the, the whole magic of an offer is, right. Is like figuring out how to do that. Um, and so that's kind of where I'd say probably 2018 to 2023, just a lot of my focus was just different iterations of that and fine tuning it and realizing problems uh, within the offer that we had, or maybe pain points that we needed to solve or what customers were looking for learning from our own mistakes, I think can be huge. And then also uh, seeing, I learned a lot from other industries as well too. And like kind of bringing that back into health and fitness. So that's really how it all started. Uh, there wasn't like a golden idea, but eventually kind of evolved into uh, what I feel like is a pretty good one. And we've been able to leverage a lot of those past experiences in order to help coaches today. One thing you mentioned that I want to bring up is the market research, because so many coaches either like don't understand what that truly means, or they just maybe try it. They put something out there and then there's no bites the first time they try and then they give up. Right. And so I kind of want to swing this back because you were saying there wasn't this like one magic idea. You just knew that your one-to-one coaching wasn't scalable how you wanted it to be. And you had something bigger there that you wanted to produce, right? Like mass produce. And so I, and I like that you mentioned, you started doing some one-to-one mentoring kind of in this space too, that was a little bit above your private coaching or like your one-to-one coaching, which is how mine started as well. Right. And so Uh, for market research, if anyone's curious on how to start that, I did the same thing that you did. I remember just asking some questions on Instagram about like business stuff, you know, just random basic things. Um, Because after my business really started scaling the first year, just people were kind of sliding into my DMs. And so the idea wasn't let me create a course. The idea was let me see if I have something here, right? Because that imposter syndrome sometimes can kick in. And I, I mentioned that for coaches that are scaling because I feel like at least you can correct me, but every point of my scale, I've always been like, am I going to do this? Can I do this? Right. And you kind of like overcome that and keep going, but you know, just getting people on a call with me totally for free, giving them a Starbucks gift card or whatever for their time. And then realizing, okay, my idea has been validated. I have something here. So I wanted to touch on that for a second, because I think a lot of coaches get to this point and you can, you can let me know what you think, but a coach will get to a point where they're like, all right, I've got 25 clients, man, I'm so wiped. I should create a course. And I'm like, well, uh, I don't know. I mean, what's, you know what I mean? Like, when should you think about that? See, I don't know that there's necessarily a time and see, the problem is there's this allure or appeal that people think a course is the answer. And most people's idea of a course is like a done Uh, a do it yourself offer, right? Like I record these modules and people are just going to pay me to like watch me talk. And even though I create free content on social media and I have a podcast and all these other things. And unfortunately that's a little bit of a hype dream. And a lot of the courses that Taylor and I are really talking about is there's still a level of support, intimacy, connection done with you, maybe not completely done for you, but there's components of the offer where there's still guidance and there's still a level of accountability to where you know, people know that you're actually in the program. Um, you know, the coach who has the 25 clients, I would say one of the best places to look for answers around your next offer would be your current and former customers. So 
I would say Taylor probably did a better job of being proactive and going on social media, polling people, asking questions, being in the DMs, like kudos to you for doing that. Um, I, I think mine was a little more intrinsic in current client conversations. I'm sure there were, I'm sure there were totally some social media conversations that went down, just maybe not to the degree of like how you kind of curated some content and doing different things around fine tuning, maybe what the audience needed. I was able to look at, okay, so if, you know, let's say you have a few dozen clients or something, or even beyond that, and you have 10 to 12 people who are like really just vocal about these particular topics or vocal about these particular things they need help with. That was kind of a starting point. Um, I also had a brief foray as a contract instructor for another certification and organization. So between having that experience doing some instruction already for someone else who is trying to do some courses and certifications and things like that. And then also having this internal roster of clients who are kind of looking for more, wanting more, and then also even leveraging their current time with me, right? Like literally using the time that they paid for, for their own transformation to then try to help either their clients or answer questions that are common that pop up in the industry. I was like, okay, there's definitely, there's maybe something here. And then I did, I think you mentioned like you did like Starbucks gift cards or have people get on the phone and just chat with them for free. My thing was kind of like, Hey, you know, bring whatever you're stuck with and you know, I will help you. And if I can like do you a solid and point you in the right direction, all I would ask is like down the road, like I may be creating something related to this. Um, like if you potentially consider supporting in some capacity, or if you can just, you know, write a little blurb that like, Hey, like Sam actually knows what he's doing. He's not like just trying to take your money or something like that. So there was definitely a phase and it was just helpful for me to get an idea of like, okay, what common women's health themes were popping up, where do coaches hit roadblocks. It also allowed me to practice my teaching because when you have to explain something like 20 different ways, you, you see, okay, it's stuck really well over here and this person's doing pretty good with it. When I explained it this way or tried to teach it this way, we didn't get a lot of traction. So the more you're working on going from like ideas to action and implementation, and then trying to help other people do that. Um, it's one thing to learn something, but then to teach someone else to actually for them to learn it and then take action on it is like a whole nother level of mastery. And so it was just a really interesting process for me of going from like, okay, this internal client focus, having mastery over the topic myself to then figuring out like, how do I get someone else to this point where they feel more confident in the topic or actually have a handle um, on what they're doing. So I would say we had similar approach in the questions, in the dialogue, in the getting into conversation, customer research or market research. But really at the end of the day, it's just having conversations with people, understanding what problems are present in the marketplace or like for those people. Do I realistically have an opportunity or a chance to solve those problems? Or do I have something that I offer that's unique that I can um, propose or, or make available in a certain way? that remedies whatever they're struggling with, whatever that obstacle is or challenge. And so to kind of tie it back to the original portion of your question with the coach who has those 25 clients, it's like, is there any demand for this on your current client roster? That's really question number one. Question number two is, do you have five or 10 really successful transformations where there were certain things that happened with those people, certain activation points, certain types of communication, certain types of information that were shared? Was there a certain cadence that you interacted with these people? Uh, did they get involved in the community with other clients or other team members? Because success leaves clues, right? And so we need to go back and almost reverse engineer 
some of our best client cases. And then also this part sucks, but you probably need to go and look at like two or three examples of where people did not succeed within your coaching offer or your coaching business. And you're not going to actually go in with the glasses of like blaming them. You're going to look at it with a fine tooth comb of like, where did I potentially either let this person down or how can I make this better? And if you can learn from like, it feels good to look at like the five or 10 best cases. Some of those people might've been successful anyways, because it's the type of person that they are, but look at multiple different cases and viewpoints, and then also go on the complete other side of things and be like, okay, these two or three people didn't have the same experience. Why was it? And maybe it was partially them, but I also have to take responsibility as a business owner that some of it was me. And then between those two uh, data points or like data sets that you're going to have from those individuals, you can begin to identify like themes that are very important related to the transformation that you offer in the coaching journey or customer journey. And you can begin to kind of figure out like, what would this look like if it were in the form of an offer or the form of a course? And that can be kind of a launching off point because too many people are worrying about like copying someone else's course or trying to duplicate something someone else has or going to business coaching. And I'm like, well, what if you just created an offer specific to you that was like your flagship program based on the previous transformations you've provided that you've already proven that you're an expert in? Like, wouldn't that be such an easy pivot for you to make and also scale your time and do those things? But people don't necessarily do that. Um, I'm not hundred percent sure why. I think some of these other aspects are kind of glamorized maybe, but I think that's the low hanging fruit for a lot of coaches. Once they hit a few dozen clients, or maybe you're at a point where it's like, cool, you're awesome at stacking marketing and sales and you're at like 40 or 50 clients, but now you're, you're like, okay, how do I get my time back? Other than hiring an assistant coach and dealing with some of the turnover that can happen as far as like scaling a team there. So that's where I tend to direct people regardless of whether they want to build a course or not is like getting conversation with some of your raving fans and the clients you have. And then let's also look at some places where people maybe fell through the cracks. So I just want to kind of reiterate that I know you've mentioned this already, but you know, Sam and I are really talking about courses that are not totally passive. Like that's not what we're talking about creating. Like, uh, and we're going to go into course curriculum now and kind of the build out of that. And I'm sure that we will both give, you know, uh, different opinions on this or different perspectives for sure. But, you know, going back to the curriculum and going back to the coaching methods you have, I hear a lot of coaches say, you know, every client's totally different. Like I have no idea. No, <laughs> try to look at it from a different perspective. Like there are certain things that you do over and over again. Right. And if you don't look at every client as a total outlier, right, there are, there are definitely methods that you practice with every client. There's a certain way that you kick it off. There's a certain way that you get through this problem or this problem, whatever it is. Right. And that's kind of how, you know, I created, um, FCA for an example, and like a very, very elementary way to explain it, you know, after I had, you know, I don't even remember how many transformations of getting to the same point, I realized there was this need out there for beginner coaches to hit a 5k month. All I saw out there was like zero to 10, zero to 10, zero to 10. I'm like, okay, well, maybe I can focus on this smaller aspect and get them to put their two weeks notice in. That was my experience, right? So I focused on that. But more importantly, I remember being so nervous to even do this mentoring with um, coaches because I, you know, was like, well, I'm throwing it out there. Let's see what happens. I wasn't charging much at all. And I noticed that every single client went through pretty much the same things over and over again. And I was having to, like you said, practice different ways of coaching people through things. Right. So 
when I sat down to build curriculum, it was really in front of me the entire time, but I hadn't articulated that. You know, I'm curious to know kind of your thoughts on building that curriculum. And like you said, you know, don't focus on making it perfect the first time because I know you and I have made so many updates and continue to make updates, but that's for later in this podcast. But, you know, your thought on just building that unique coaching framework. Yeah. And how you'll teach over time will change because ideally with the reps of explaining things, you get better and more efficient at doing it. And you also have a larger sample size of audience to work those ideas. I was pretty fortunate that a couple things that I shared in free content really landed with people. So it was more about adding depth and a level of, I guess, specificity to things that you couldn't fit in like a 2200 word Instagram caption. So some of the things dating back to like 2018, 2019, I tried to create like a kind of uh, book of sorts or outline that would like accompany the uh, mentorship and course experience that it kind of built out. And so in that and trying to frame my ideas and explain like why things happen the way that they do, I kind of landed on a few different methods and models. But I think one thing you explained very well, Taylor, is like clients may have individual, maybe someone's weight loss and someone's muscle building or someone needs to work on their gut health or whatever. We've got like a lot of different directions that we may be pulled as coaches. But what I try to draw from would be the parallels and like how we think about problems, how we approach the customer experience or certain stages or phases that we may have. Um, because even if they don't go in the same order every time, maybe you just know that you have a phase where you're like focused on a client's health versus focused on fat loss, right? Or maybe you know that with every client, there's like an assessment portion of something you do, whether it's reviewing their intake form or you hop on a quick phone call, there's probably something you're doing to review their life to get the information you need it doesn't matter if they don't have the same macros. It doesn't matter if one person needs to eliminate gluten and dairy and someone else doesn't, or if someone's training five days a week and someone's training three days a week. It's really not about that. I think coaches get very in the weeds. It's more uh, your your methodology or thought process and how you're sort of engineering that transformation. And so with what I teach, I find that it's a little more important to bring people not only the actual science of what's going on, but helping people think about the science of what's going on or how they should think about a problem. Because some of the coaches that have had the greatest success in coming out of um, our current curriculum, it's really more about they're able to critically think, they're able to look at different parallels between clients, they're able to learn from different things, they're able to apply uh, information from different areas. And I think that makes them more successful. So I really think it's more about how can you help someone understand your thought process for solving a problem or how can you help someone understand the steps by which you may go about things, even if there's little mini steps within that or little points that are going to be tweaked, right? Maybe Sally needs to be in a calorie deficit, but Jane does not need to be in a calorie deficit. That's okay. But when you were onboarding them, maybe there were some parallels between the two. Or for for me, like an FNMS using an example inside of science, I think it's important before you dive into reproductive health or adrenals or PCOS or a number of different things that we just talk about kind of a 10,000 foot view of like metabolism or a 10,000 foot view of adaptive physiology. Why does the body change the way that it changes? What type of stimulus is the body sensitive to, whether it's food or stress or a number of other different things, right? So once we have this um, path or like sort of roadmap to follow, you can then begin to stack things on top of that and then have the individualization in there too. So there, there's certainly a way to do it. Um, and also you could think about maybe what are 
even if you're providing, let's say it's, you're providing a customized nutrition plan and training program, and you're really a firm believer in individualization versus cookie cutter, which I totally am. I know Taylor's a big proponent of that. But what might be some themes? Does everybody need to learn about a food log? Does everybody need to learn about stress management? Is sleep important to everyone? Is recovery important to everyone? Even if they're training a different amount during the week, recovery is still important. Sleep is still important. Stress management is important. So you could create pillars or foundational principles that you believe in that drive results for your clients, even if their actual execution you know, differs. Maybe someone's doing time-restricted eating, someone's not. Maybe someone's on an elimination diet, someone else isn't. And that's okay. It's more about, okay, but the person, both of those individuals still need some of the things we just talked about. They still need to prioritize their sleep and get into a good nighttime routine, or maybe they need stress management, or they need help with their time management. So you're going to find core considerations and struggles that your clients have, even if they have ever so slightly different goals or ever so slightly different health histories. And then you can really work to engineer what that path looks like and maybe even providing a little bit of coaching along the way as like a hybrid portion um, along with the course material, right? Along with those pillars that you're sharing. Well, and it takes repetition, right? And that's kind of, you know, what I want to keep getting back into is, is everything that we're talking about, whether it's the course build out, the curriculum design, the um, just advancing it as it scales, right? Like it all takes repetition. And so if you've had five clients and that's your lifetime, you know, that's it, right? It's going to be hard to think of a course build out. Um, but I just want to ask you, I know you're always updating it, but like, you know, when you were like, all right, I'm going to create this course, just curious, how long did it take you to like build out the curriculum before you launched it the first time? Ish. I mean, definitely no more than 12 weeks, but I also, I'm probably not the best example of this because I also tend to do better when, if I have an idea and I start acting on it and I sort of build things, I'm not saying for everyone that you need to like assemble your parachute as you jump out of the plane, but there is a level of um, sense of urgency and also just getting uh, sort of test flights under your belt that I think is super important. So the first time I taught it, because I was doing a lot of one-on-ones, it allowed me to already have some sample data to play with. I think when we went through, thinking back, it was like Q1 or Q2 years and years and years ago, I want to say most of it was completed in in like a 12-week time horizon, maybe. Uh, whereas the original, when I was doing it with like one person at a time or a very, very small group would have been closer to like, okay, maybe we covered stuff in like eight weeks. So there are things that changed over time as I built it, but I'm a, I'm the, t the way that I like to kind of learn, map things, teach things and go is create outlines and then fill in maybe some talking points that I really want to focus on. And then maybe find supporting data or client examples or different things that I'm going to teach and, uh, kind of go from go from there. So it's definitely been a while since like the first flight. But I think if there's anything that I could provide some encouragement on or share with you guys is sometimes you do have to sort of jump into it. Um, I would say an outline is very smart and not everybody works well under pressure. So if you're that person, pre-record some modules, pre-record some teachings, get some stuff on paper. But I do think the perfectionist mentality can hurt you a little bit if you don't allow yourself to just immerse yourself in the actual, whether it's teaching or coaching or whatever it is you're trying to do, you actually need to do the thing um, versus just having this idea on paper. So 
there was definitely a period of time where I documented some of those key conversations. I know for a fact, I vividly remember like whether it was Apple notes or Google doc, like making a very solid outline, then filling in that outline with some of my favorite teaching points and examples, and maybe some case studies, um, FAQs that would come up for each section and going over like almost like a mock Q and a based on past conversations that I'd had. And then from there, that allowed me to have sort of a minimum viable, um, Thing that I could do. And then just from there, how can you fill it in to make it as robust as you can with the past customer experiences you've had? And that's where talking to people can be super helpful in iterating off of that. And then once I did it um, the first couple of times, I think it was probably after two or three sort of uh, run throughs where I just went and did like a complete overhaul. And I was like, okay, I learned enough from these experiences to then there, there've been a few key milestones Probably um, partially also when like the world shut down, I had a lot of time on my hands to like go in and, and completely reboot a lot of this stuff. So 2020, I made a ton of changes. 2022, there were a lot of change. Late 2021 into 2022, there were a lot of changes. Then as like a midpoint in 2022, I like retooled some more things in terms of customer journey. And the more people that you've run through things and the greater volume you have, you then can begin to make uh, more strategic decisions, I think even on maybe more of like a quarterly or annual basis. Whereas the first couple of times I was doing it, there weren't necessarily enough people or you didn't have a, as big of a sample size to be able to like have the uh, rationale to then go pursue this like different avenue or direction that you wanted to do. So long story short, I would say I strongly recommend like a very solid outline with your key talking points or any research you need to do, any client examples or stories or important things you want to tell or share, any key graphics or things you want to do. Um, but beyond that, I do think you need to kind of submerge, like just kind of like submerge into the content and actually just start engaging with your customers um, and then go back and then make it better, right? Just improve from everything that you've learned in that first, first couple run-throughs. And um, if I had to do it again, I probably would have done it a little sooner after the first one or two, and uh, then just kind of continue to make it like a quarterly or annual thing. Because I think you can change it too often where it's like, if you don't give yourself enough time, then you don't know what works. And if so if you change it too frequently, that's a problem. But if you don't change it frequently enough, you're potentially missing out on valuable feedback in learning from uh, the customers that you do have to improve the experience for the future people going through the program. So it's a balance, I think. Um, what about you? Like, how did you approach that in terms of when you were doing um, things more on the business side, kind of going from coaching, and then you had these ideas, you did the market research, what did that curriculum sort of revision process? Or were you the type that like, you put the offer out there and then you built it? Or was it more like you had this master perfectionist plan of like all your slides were done and you're like good to go? So I'm definitely a messy action person. I really, it's funny, as much of a perfectionist as I am, I'm not in business, which is like, I don't know if that's so weird. Like I am with my fitness and my like personal life and whatever, um, but I'm not with business because I just understand that things happen so quickly. And in order to get the data that you need, right, you have to like get something out there. That doesn't mean it's not going to be my best effort, but it's never going to feel totally perfect. So the way that FCA went, I kind of had like an eight month Time frame from idea inception to like the day that my clients started. Um, I 
remember, you know, my first launch with it was about, I think it was six weeks long. Um, and I'm, I'm like, I'm known for doing six to eight week launches and we can kind of talk about launch timeline in a minute. Cause I know that's pretty long for some people, but, um, I remember first just thinking, okay, let me articulate and get down on paper exactly what the big ideas were creating an outline, just like you did. And then started filling in the gaps. And then I was like, all right, how long is this going to be? What's the idea? And you had something that sounded just like what I did. You know, my mentoring for private coaching was about four months. Some of them would resign, but generally speaking, I designed uh, like a four month time frame. That's kind of how I came up with it. I was like, what needs to be a module? What's kind of a, you know, an extra video here and there. And then I, I knew that there were a lot of other competitors out there for me. And so one thing that I would encourage you to do is just see who is a competitor of yours, right? Um, because it, it's not about copying or any of that, but I think you need to know what you're up against, right? Like what is different about what you have to offer? Because I get that question with FCA all the time, right? Somebody's coming to me, they've had seven conversations with other business coaches. Like what is it that's different about what I'm doing? And so I knew that I wanted uh, number one, like I still am a fitness coach today. Um, my roster is not nearly as big, of course, but you know, I find that knowledge very valuable, which is why I made sure people like yourself were, were in there, even if it was just for like one training or something. Um, but I started basically outlining it and then I went through, and this was like my favorite thing that I did, but I would kind of highlight red, yellow, or green, what I was super confident talking about, what I was like, maybe like freshen this up a little bit. And then what did I want to outsource? Right. I think people forget that they can bring other experts in. Um, and, you know, this wasn't this didn't end up being like modules were taught by other coaches. It was more of like the advanced training vault that I have. Right. Again, bringing you in. This was two plus years ago. And so um, I didn't know anything really or not nearly as much uh, about like hormones as I do today. And so, you know, there were little things that I wanted to outsource without making FCA like a 50, 50 split. I mean, it's really an 85% business coaching course, 15% fitness coaching. Um, but essentially I designed absolutely everything, created the resources, all of that. Um, probably in about four months, like you did. And then I think the hardest part though, was designing like the sales page and the marketing stuff. Like, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I think people really underestimate like they're sitting on this gold mine of information and then they don't know how to market themselves. Like that's what I see happen all the time. Every one of my clients is so freaking smart. And then when it comes time to actually sell something, that's where I see the ball drop. And so I'm curious to know for you, um, how, how were you able to manage like the launch? What did your launch cycle look like? Yeah. So fortunately with those initial groups, because they were smaller and I already had some coaches that had signed up for like a fitness transformation that actually needed mentorship, I could reach back into those, that pool of individuals. And then I also had some goodwill from all of those case study calls that I did. I mean, cause it was literally like a month, maybe two. Um, this was in probably like November, December one year. I just did so many of those one-on-ones that it, it really did build, I think some brand equity for me. That was super helpful. Uh, I had also around that time really made like a pretty significant podcast tour. So even though, and I didn't really pitch the offer on those podcasts, but it helped me build, build audience and tension in terms of what I actually wanted to do. I think your four month timeline is pretty generous. I, I think if we're both somewhat mess, messy action takers, um, it would be super generous to say that I had like four months of stuff into my actual, um, 
the delivery, right? The course. And I think now there's been a lot more fine tuning of that and realizing I look back and I'm like, dude, there's so much that you could do here. Like you've got, you've got a lot of great ideas, but we really need to build this out in the delivery of those ideas. Uh, and, and so transitioning to the marketing strategies, expectations, and just kind of, you even mentioned your launch timeline, which I think is super fascinating uh, in terms of length and everything there. But initially uh, the marketing was easy. And I think when you have a warm audience, you've had people who followed you for a while and you have something new, you're going to have early adopters that want to be involved and want to be part of it. And they are a fan of your brand and they want the different thing that no one's had before. It's like when the new car comes out or the new, whatever it is, or new, you know, there's something new at your favorite, like fitness apparel and you grab it. Um, there's, there's a level of like a percentage of your audience that's going to fall into that category. And so the first couple of times I was running the program, I was very fortunate that I had a lot of that like fresh organic audience. And also these people pouring in from different podcasts had also had the teaching experience from a external organization and was doing some seminars that year. And I, I wish I could say that all of that was done very strategically, but it was more of a very nice, like perfect storm of podcasts, seminars, in per, you know, the in-person speaking combined with a pretty substantial roster of past folks who maybe signed up for an offer that wasn't perfect for them, but allowed them to be the early adopters in, in the coaching offer, the B2B offer that actually was for them, which was like the early origins of FNMS. Uh, from a marketing perspective, I kind of remember building like that first sales page and actually, you know, even seeking out uh, additional education and um, even, I guess you could sort of call, sort of call it mentorship or books and reading about um, even writing copy because it wasn't something that I was like super proficient at at that point. So from a marketing strategies perspective, I was super green in that area. And I think I was very fortunate that there was demand for the thing that I wanted and that I had social proof. If it were not for social proof and really trying to build um, social proof and audience and having people who want to kind of come into the program, I think it would have been a lot harder. And earlier, so it was probably around 20, 2018 was big in the fall because uh, I had like a T Nation article go up. I spoke at LinkedIn for the first time uh, at the Empire State Building in New York. So I had those things kind of swirling on my social media where it was like, okay, like maybe this guy's actually like kind of legit. And so I had these people who were in my ecosystem where before they weren't buying, they weren't buying from me, right? They were like, I'm interested in this guy. I'm going to steal his free content. I like him. I'm going to follow him, but I'm not going to pay for anything. And then all of a sudden it's like, as other parties begin to see that you're legit, it's like they latch on. So you have your early adopters. And then by like the second or third round, I hit a point where, the other efforts I had related to my brand compounded as like an effective marketing strategy to then pull people in. So I didn't have like the perfect sales. I had a sales page, certainly wasn't perfect. The copy could have been better. The things I think I did well were more along the lines of brand building and strong social proof related to videos and uh, testimonials from coaches, as well as my own bank of client testimonials of people that I had served in their transformation. So if I had like a good, a good, bad, ugly, it would be like the good was building brand. Um, I think the writing on the page was probably okay. It was not like the best, but it was okay. Um, a lot of the social proof aspects that were out there that went into building brand, I think were really helpful. And then the new 
uh, organic social media audience funneling from social and podcasts was probably pretty helpful as well. The things I was not very good at was like learning how to do, you know, email launch, um, the sales page and like the tech that goes into the integration of like email and actual sales page. Those are the things from a marketing strategy perspective where I think I've grown a lot over the last five or 10 years, but that was definitely more of a weak point. But you can start with something as simple as like, you can have a very basic sales page or I've even seen people do really amazing things with a Google doc and then have a solid type form and do really well on your sales calls, right? It's like, sometimes we we make the uh, the mountain bigger than it needs to be. But I would say from a marketing strategies perspective, like kind of good and bad, that's kind of how I would lay things out as far as things I was doing well at that point in my career versus like, okay, this needs work and you're going to continue to need to grow in that area. I will say that we definitely like defer on a lot of those points, but not not anything that I don't agree with. It's just like, that wasn't the landscape for me. So when I was creating FCA, like I had built this business on fitness coaching, right? So my audience wasn't warm. I didn't have coaches following me, not many. So that's why for me, this is when I really solidified my outbound sales strategy, right? I didn't really know what the hell I was doing, but my ass was in the DMs hours a day, right? And I was like, I'm just going to find people to ingest my content. And I remember making like this really hard pivot. Um, and instead of having you know, 100% fitness content, I pretty much went, all right, I'm never writing another fitness caption again. I've got three years of, you know, banked content. It's going straight business, right? And so I remember, you know, and I've, I've told this to my clients before, but I remember pitching my offer just for private coaching, not FCA, but pitching private coaching for 90 days straight before anyone ever bought anything for me. Whereas like fitness coaching came very easy because I had been documenting my health journey since 2012. So people kind of started following me from that, right? right. So FCA was a little bit different. Like the sales page was very important, right? Like the videos, the Loom videos, things like that were super important um, for me to create. And so it's interesting to hear your perspective because you're saying, well, I had, you know, these speaking engagements or these in-person things that were happening. Um, I agree with you on the podcast uh, because I'm so happy that I started my podcast in, you know. So this yeah. was actually being a guest on others. And I would agree with you, like sales pages are super, super, super important. And when I said social proof, I meant like stuff I could put on the sales page. So I think we're, I think we agree on the uh, sales page component. I would say I was at a very unique crossroads that a lot of people listening to this may not have sort of this vortex of like things in your career come together the way that they did at that point in time. So what I would extract more from the story that parallels Taylor as like a key point of emphasis would be, you know, um, so for her, she mentioned the loom videos and like having a strong sales page, but all of that is just like compelling evidence that your offer could work for someone. Right. And so I use social proof for that. Maybe she's using a different, like other ways to come about at that same point of like getting someone to convert. And the connection she created through DM and Outbound, I had had some of that through phone calls and doing the open sort of office hours idea that I had, and then past clients who I had a relationship with. So the as much as we may be saying different things to kind of extract this for the listener, the parallel is like connection with audience, regardless of where they're sort of coming from. Taylor cultivated hers. And then I think from that sales and marketing strategy perspective, 
one of the common themes is, you know, she found that it was very important to begin uh, sort of pouring into copy and captions and like creating things that were, um, you know, moving away from the fitness offer. And I, I was pretty similar. You know, we, we both probably went through that phase of like, wow, I've been talking about my transformation or my client's transformation for a long time. I've got to talk about this other thing. And that can be a big shift. I think one thing I will say that probably did work to your advantage to an extent is I remember because before that you were a reporter um, or like a news news uh, caster and like had the media avenue running for you and you were in your transformation. And so when that was more of a side hustle for you, I think even prior to that, you had been creating content even before you were probably pitching super hard. So before it was your full-time job, Taylor had banked years of probably like content creation, sharing her journey and her pit, like her share to pitch ratio was probably pretty low compared to a full-time fitness coach, right? Like the amount of value that she added, like this is, um, goes back to like three Gary V books ago, but the idea of like jab, 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 right hook or give, 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 ask. Taylor was giving a lot more, like her ratio of give to ask was, was pretty solid. The parallel in my journey was more so I was able to add value to those coaches, solve their problems. And then when I did have something to ask, I had established, you know, there was some content around helping people and I had already sort of built that uh, brand equity or some goodwill. So Taylor had done that, I think, probably before you even came up with the business offer, because I think you had that other experience. Your Instagram was really like education and entertainment and your and your just personal story for like a a pretty decent chunk of your career, I feel like. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. I started my Instagram in 2012. Um, I was laid off from my TV job in 2019 and started my business, you know, immediately, right? And so I just, I mean, I had no job. I was like, crap. I'm living in Cleveland and I've been here for a year. What the hell am I going to do, right? So yeah, I went straight in for for fitness coaching and. Um, because I had built so much rapport and education and inspiration and all of those good things, not, not intending to, right. I just, Instagram was kind of my outlet and I had people that were coming from, you know, um, work or the cycling studio I was at, or just random people from high school that have been following me that were like, Hey, I want to hire you. Right. And so that didn't, that didn't last for that long. Right. Ultimately I, I would say I got my first like 10 to 20 clients pretty quickly, right. With, with, um, not a ton of outreach, but then pivoting over to like the business coaching that definitely is where I realized, okay, I don't have much traction, uh, because people saw what I had built. Like I talked about getting laid off. I talked about all of that. Like people saw that transformation, but I didn't ever really have a super warm audience. Um, you know, so for me, it was this constant cycle of outreach, get them warm, sell outreach, get them warm, sell. Right. And so that's kind of how it was for me, but I, I will say, yes, my, my journalism career, 1000% makes content very easy for me. You know, that's, and that's like a big priority. Well, I just, I meant more like, so a lot of people are like, you know, may hear the thing of when you got laid off and you got those 10 to 20 clients, people think of that as an overnight success. But what I'm trying to point to is you still put in time documenting your journey and sharing oh, content. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Your content creator uh, background could be mm -hmm. leveraged to some of the success you have yeah. today. And, and as much as you did need to pivot and you changed your strategies for growing the business, what I was maybe pointing out to someone who's in the infancy of their journey is like, Taylor still banked some hours, some time, some years, as far as sharing, documenting, being a content creator, 
contributing to her audience, educating that audience, entertaining that audience, sharing her journey, like maybe having some vulnerable spots of like things that she was experiencing. And then when the business stuff came, like you had to get resourceful and learn some new skills. But I still think it's important. That's why it's just like important for uh, coaches listening to this or maybe more in that beginner phase. It's like, you got to start posting. You got to start talking to people. You got to start sharing stuff. You got to put yourself out there. Um, it is really more what I was speaking to. I think your pivot definitely makes sense given your audience was more of a fitness uh, sort of people who are gravitating towards your, your fitness content more than the business content. So you had to cultivate the warm audience, which totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'll kind of add one more note on like my first few dozen clients or I'll say first dozen, because to be honest, I don't really remember exactly. I, I just, I do remember my first like eight to 10 clients were living in the same city as me. And one thing that I always tell my coaches who are totally new is, you know, I would not stop talking about what I was doing. The second that I knew I was leaving TV and I, they gave me like a four week notice. I was like, okay, I have four weeks to try and figure something out. I mean, it wasn't like a post on my story and people came. It was really like, Hey, I know you have this photo shoot coming up. Hey, you have this wedding coming up. Hey, you know what I mean? And kind of like offering my friends some like low prices to just get them on my roster to try and build some rapport. But I think that that's, whether we're talking about a course or your first client, you know, I I see that there's a lot of this like grit missing, right? Like this idea that, you know, they may see somebody like you and they're looking at what you've built and it's taken you, I don't even know how many, how many years, but a, a long time, right? To get I'm older than you. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I just want to make sure like neither of us were overnight successes. Like Sam yeah. and I have put in so many reps and so many years to get here. And we've heard no probably a million times, right? And you mentioned one thing that was really helpful, but like, I always say that the best trait for an entrepreneur is curiosity, right? And like constantly staying curious. You mentioned earlier, you know, um, about uh, I think it was like when you were talking about finding resources for a sales page or, or re referencing other uh, industries for what you were doing, right? Like there's not literature on the fitness coaching industry, really. Like if you're trying to learn business techniques and tactics, right? I think it's so important to get curious and just start like diving into some rabbit holes, you know, like it's not just what your coach tells you, what your mentor tells you, like you have to go outsource this knowledge on your own and get curious about what's out there, how to solve your problem in a better capacity. But yeah, so I'm with you on everything that you said for sure. Um, I'm curious to know the time frame between like how many rounds of live FNMS did you do before taking it evergreen? Uh, I try to give you a rough ballpark. I'm trying to do math in my head really quick. Probably no less than five to seven. Wow. Okay. I only did two. Okay. I probably, technically it wasn't FNMS yet. So if we go through, probably had a couple years that were more the mentorship saga, move more into, I actually called it, uh, there were a couple rounds. It was applied science methods mentorship. Uh, kind of came up with the FNMS idea. FNMS itself would have been three, uh, three cohorts. So if you did two, it would have been FNMS would have been three. So it's like coming from that perspective of once the offer was actually created, um, because we ended up going fully evergreen, uh, after 
essentially some of those larger intakes where I was like, okay, maybe we don't have to only rely on, on launch and cohort based, um, on more of like a quarterly to, I think we were doing intakes about three, two, two, three times a year. And then from three times a year, rather than just doing quarterly launches, it was like, let's just go evergreen. Cause when we got to the point where it was like, we could launch every quarter, it's like, why don't we just instead take people all the time and then figure out how to actually change the customer experience to, to be able to handle that and be able to provide a similar experience. So just in case somebody's listening and they're like, what the hell is evergreen, right? Evergreen is you can apply, you can join anytime. Whereas live is like a hard start, hard stop. Um, and I remember, you know, I did three launches, live launches in my first year of dropping FCA, but by the third launch cycle, I knew that that was my last live launch for it. And I was going to take it evergreen. So, you know, my process and I'll explain it pretty quickly was, you know, cause people always ask me, why would I go live when I could just make it evergreen? And, and in my opinion, and you may have a different thought process other than just the obvious of going through it and making sure it makes sense. Right. You know, I think that there needs to be, it's just easier to create hype, right? If you come out with something brand new and it's like you can start any time and there's no authority around the offer, I think you're setting yourself up for a really shitty launch. Yeah, and the uh, rapport that's built between people who are starting at the same time. So as much as I, I think we were able to figure out the marketing aspect a little bit faster and then what we had to really dive in on was more figuring out a way to support our clients at the same level when they all weren't going through the same content at the exact same time. And we're kind of a modified evergreen in that I try to make it where it's still, because there's limited availability and it's a classroom size and it's a little bit more advanced material, we still have to have sort of a first come first serve. Like as people finish, we can take people on. So there's still a little bit of a limited cap on the front end, but then on the back end, as far as people completing it and staying with us, that's more evergreen. So I moved to kind of like a hybrid model on the front and it still was largely based on kind of availability. And then we would still push enrollments and do enrollment waves or intakes uh, around that and then allow people to kind of stay depending on their preference and what they actually needed. And then as we rolled out expansions to the curriculum, we would allow people to opt our current customers to stay if they wanted to, to learn from that expanded content. So I would say I agree with you 100% that if you do not have social proof and authority for that offer yet, doing it like evergreen or continuously does not make sense. Uh, I also think it's a disservice to your initial customers and community who could benefit from the shared experience of other customers and community members. Because the first couple of times, you're not going to be 100% like perfect at what you're doing yet. After a few times, you're going to get better and better and better, and you're going to be better at teaching. You're going to be better at providing an experience. You're going to be better at supporting your clients. You're going to be better at having support staff or hiring the right people. But until you get there, the community helps you. Like you're going to go 80 and like the last like 10 to 20 is going to be like the community has to carry some of that for you. And also having the cohort based aspect of people matriculating through, I think can really help your success rates. When you go evergreen, that gets a little harder and you need to reverse engineer how to create a similar experience, even with people starting at different times. So that would be um, where I, I, I definitely agree with Taylor on like, you're doing yourself a disservice from a marketing and sales perspective. If you're just instantly trying to open it to where, Oh, I can take people all the time. Um, and there's even probably benefit to like having certain collapsed intake windows, like for other 
components of business as well. Um, but that's something where I think we're pretty similar in that sense and why, you know, I didn't make the shift initially. I think you got to build some reps there uh, in terms of the value you're providing for your people and also your ability to, if you open Evergreen the first time, it's like, you don't even know how to get people into the program yet. And you're saying people can join at any time. So I think you got to master that first uh, before you sort of pivot there. So yeah. And the thing with, you know, live launches and I I've got podcasts on that. So I'm not even going to really dive into, to all of like the launch style and strategy, but I just wanted to really put that out there because I'll have a coach who has a great idea and they want to just put out a passive course and throw it away and that's it. And so similar to you, like we also have a cap, right. And not on the back end Cause we do have support as well, like alumni support. Um, but I think as long as you are creating an environment where you are accessible, because that was really important to me was that when these coaches joined this beginner level coaching container, they get access to me every single day. Like that's very, very important to me. And so even though our capacity is significantly higher than it was years ago, right? There still is a reasonable number of people that we can take on and make sure that they are kicking ass, right? I never want this course to be something, and same with you, where somebody comes through and is like, the hell is that? Like I paid all this money and I didn't get any anything from it. So my next question and, and the conversation I want to kind of move into is, you know, these support roles, right? Whatever you want to call them. Uh, I really hate the term support coaches. It's not my favorite terminology because it says it has such a bad rap, you know, out there. But, um, you know, it took me years before I ever introduced some kind of additional coaching support in my container. So I'm curious to know how you, was it like an inbound thing? Did you put an application out? How did you find that support? And what was that role um, technically, or is that? So probably had two, so two roles kind of came together at the same time. One was more operations related and just helping in terms of fulfillment, uh, more on the logistics side of people enrolling and being able to handle that. As far as instruction, because what was taught inside of the nutrition and metabolism specialization is inherently specialized as the name implies, that was a little bit harder. And fortunately, I found someone who had actually reached out to me for advice on his coaching and everything he was going through. And we had a really good conversation around, Hey, like, are you someone who really wants to kind of build your own thing? Or are you just really passionate about these topics and you want to be a part of a team and something bigger than yourself and like help grow that? Um, do you find yourself being kind of that complimentary piece or is it really, really important to you to kind of be like number one center of attention? Like you've got to be the person and some people don't want to be that person or they don't want the pressure or the risk associated with it. And I was like, you don't have to tell me right now. I was like, think about it. I was like, I don't want an answer right now. Go like reflect on this, go, you know, be in your business, do what you want to do. And then we also just talked about uh, the person's current life and what would be worth it to them to be a part of it, which for some people, if you're listening to this, you may have someone who follows you, who's, who believes in your work or wants to learn from you, wants to be a part of what you're doing. And maybe they just have a part-time job that they don't like. And if you can replace that part-time job and they can work for you and then do their other thing, that's great. Or maybe they're trying to get out of their full-time job or transition careers, or they want to be more involved in coaching. So I was fortunate to find someone who was very passionate about the material, really didn't love the uh, marketing and social media requirements involved in like building a brand, 
but because they loved the material so much, they wanted to be heavily involved, but was also in a crossroads from a life perspective, where it was very important to them to get a little bit of time back and move away from a job that they had. And so my offer was essentially, hey, I'll get you away from the thing that you hate. You can do the topics that you love and you don't need to be like the person who's going out there all the time to find the clients. And they're like, okay, cool, I'll do that. So my first core people were really a combinations of like, uh, combination, excuse me, of like the education fulfillment aspect and then more of the logistics and operations and systems side of fulfillment. And uh, one was more referral-based and the other was just based on an organic conversation that I had because it was like we were DMing and I don't think I even realized the person's potential 100% at first because of how the conversation was going. And then I started doing some digging, like just kind of wandering around between their profiles, um, some past client stuff and like kind of just doing some internet wandering. And I was like, oh, this, this dude's pretty good. Like he actually knows what he's talking about. And then I kind of circled back and I was like, Hey, do you want to like, we should chat. Like, let's actually like connect a little bit further outside of this conversation. And I always felt like I could create a win-win. And so if you are looking for a support person, which that's not necessarily what we call um, folks inside of our organization, but whether you're looking for help and it's more operational, or you need someone to help you with the education, fulfillment, or coordination of what your clients are actually doing. Sometimes it's just about finding the win-win for that person and what it is that they're looking for at the stage of their life uh, and what would be of value to them. And then figuring out how do I provide that value through this offer? Uh, and is it something that they're passionate about and like want to be a part of? So actually haven't had a ton of success with like just only... Um, the application aspect, but that was also, this was years ago, a couple years ago at this point, uh, hadn't had as much podcast was kind of earlier on, uh, that started in 2019. And then, uh, also I've grown my social media as well. So who knows, like, I don't know, maybe if I posted something now, there'd be like a very different response, but these came up a little bit more organically, which, uh, I can appreciate. Yeah. I think, uh, I think, you know, there can be a mix of this and, Mine was also organic or, and, and it's also been a role, somebody fulfilling a role in my business where I just saw potential for that role to, to keep increasing. Right. So that's, I agree with you there. Um, some of it has been from clients expressing, you know, the, the need and, and not every one of those has necessarily worked out. But if a client is like, man, I wish I was on your team or I, you know, that's a goal for me. And I know they're kind of a rock star client, then we might have that conversation depending on what I'm needing. But um, I also just want to add this, like, don't be afraid to do the old fashioned job posting on, you know, indeed Upwork LinkedIn. It's definitely a process, like be prepared for the volume, but you know, I, I just want to remind people like I've, I've found some really great, uh, you know, roles through things like that. So, but I'm with you. My, my first kind of like success coach, so to speak was definitely, um, a rockstar client that had, I had three years of social proof that she would be absolutely amazing. So, um, but again, on the other side of that, I have coaches that might say, Oh man, like this girl's awesome. She's been a client forever. She's going to kick ass as an assistant coach. And it's like, is that the easy way out? Or is she actually going to kick ass for you? So I think it's just like doing your due diligence on that, you know? Um, because and a lot of people don't have the difficult conversations of like, planning, you almost have to ask, right? Like I was very intentional about asking, like, if you're going to want to do your own thing, 
this is not the place for you, right? Yep. It's like setting expectations and having those boundaries because otherwise you're both going to be upset. You're both going to end up in conflict. Like it's very important to establish and figuring out that person's personality and key drivers. So for some of the members of our team, they, they wanted to be involved with what we were doing, but they didn't necessarily want to have to solely build it on their own. So it's important to get into those conversations and say, hey, this is not designed for you to just learn every single thing that we do and then go do your own thing in a year or two. Like that's not, like we're not doing that. So if that's the case, just wish them well, give them some resources, send them on their way, like let them build their network and just remain as friends and they go do their thing. But that's why I think, um, is the phrase like slow to hire, quick to fire? Is that the actual, okay. Yeah, so I guess I was, even though I didn't really know any better at the time, for some of our core personnel and like key people who are rock stars now, I, I maybe was a little slower in that I had some conversation just about them as a person and like what they were looking for and needed. And then I could actually project like how our vision aligned with what it is, like their vision could fit within the vision, right? Like what you want can exist here. And I can also make your life better in the short term. Because as humans, like we need some gratification on that shorter term, like time horizon, whether it's financial compensation or some time freedom or some wins um, up front. And so what I tried to do, especially for some of our core personnel is like, if they were in a job that they hated or they were short on time or they didn't have the work flexibility, it's like, how can I create those things within the role that I'm creating for you? so that you're excited about this and then like creating that traction right away. And then they're more aligned with the long-term vision, which is where then as the business owner and founder, like you reap rewards from them now contributing to that vision and project that you're working on. Well, that's something too. Like, I mean, we could have an entirely different conversation on this, but so many business owners have zero vision and I'm not asking you to have a 10 year game plan thought out. Right. But when you bring people onto your team, you have to create and help them create a vision, right? Like that makes sense for their growth too. And so that's something that I do with all of my um, my contractors, people on my team is, you know, they've all got kind of a game plan for how I see their, uh, their growth, right? Happening. So that's super important. I agree with you a thousand percent. It's not just, okay, let me pay you this money and then I'll figure it out later, right? Like making sure that everything is, um, you know, like you're, you're operating like a business owner, right? And I think that we, think that the, I mean, online business is like the wild, wild west, right? So people are running some wild shows out here, you know? So I just think like the more you can do your due diligence and like really be an amazing manager, leader, all of that, like that takes skill. Um, question for you, just, I'm thinking of this because I I'm curious, honestly, uh, people that come into FNMS, you know, like you've got a ton of referrals, I'm sure. Would you say that like, like, I guess, what's the ratio of inbound to outbound? How do you sell it? We're still a lot of inbound. Uh, now, I will say that over time, there's been things related to building brand and building audience where I, you know, if you're doing a mix of organic and paid advertising, technically it's like, at what point is your messaging sort of outbound to where that is fueling the inbound, right? So we have a combination. Uh, I would say the majority of our FNMS students are podcast listeners. Uh, we do have referrals from students, which is great. Always love to have that sort of community. Like it's a uh, sort of full circle in the customer journey, right? The person comes in as a new person and then they eventually are bringing in someone else. There's been reasons and seasons for dialing back forms of outbound 
and also finding out the right mix of how that might work for us. And especially when people want to get into more conversations in a DM about like PCOS or something, right? It's not common for outbound folks to also be like your strongest, like science-based team members, right? Usually those are people who would traditionally fall under the classification of a sales team. So I really have not, uh, leveraged outbound to the degree that people might expect, although we do our own version of it within communities. That's more, um, I think genuine to what we do and like authentic to what we do. So it's, it's really more of my job is to create the initial interest and uh, captivation related to the program. And then once someone expresses that interest and maybe opts in for more information, members of our team will then communicate with those people. And it's very uh, obvious that it's that like, they'll say, hi, it's so-and-so like, it's not someone pretending to be me, but there'll be a team member who will introduce themselves. They'll see if they have any questions, they'll build rapport. They want to have a conversation. And then you have the opportunity to learn more, um, ask any frequently asked questions. They'll send them videos and resources and different things, different, uh, customer stories or client journey stuff. So we're more of a hybrid where I generate, like I do certain things in our marketing that's technically just brand building and also uh, creating interest around things related to our offer. And then once someone raises their hand and is like, hey, I'd like a little bit, and it's not always like a direct call to action, but there are things that are peripherally related to our offer, then people are in our content ecosystem and will share things that are either, that are relevant to where they're at in their journey. So we also get a lot of coaches who maybe aren't ready for something like FNMS. So we'll send them, hey, here's a complimentary workshop, or here's a audio training, or here's a video series, or here's this checklist that's going to be great for you based on where you are. So we have people who are really more providing support in that process of like coming into our ecosystem versus uh, very rarely, if ever, has there been a large volume of just outbound or cold outbound, where it's like, we're just going to someone's page because they say that they're a coach. And then we're like, hey, how's it going? And then trying to, you know, generate something from there. That's not really been a, a key driver, but it's kind of that I'd say hybrid. And my role has sort of shifted and evolved over time to try to support that enrollment. But we have a pretty good, it's a pretty good mix of current student referrals. I'd say podcast, um, nurturing via like email content, newsletter, website, uh, my social media platform. And then we do have uh, some advertising, but it's not a cold push to an offer. It's more content to nurture and support someone coming into our content to a greater depth. And then from there, opening up the conversation about ways we may be able to help them as a coach. So I find that that's more aligned with me personally, and also helps us to have uh, better clients, like when they actually are ready and apply for FNMS. Yeah. I mean, I just, I always like to ask that question because you're not doing sales calls, right? No, not at this yeah. stage. Yeah, yeah. Of, uh, Correct. Yeah. I, I mean, stopped doing enrollment calls a, a while back. Um, and that was an interesting transition, but that was one of the things that I waited to, we, we found support, like there was support within the organization and finding other team members in other areas before that was passed off because cool. people were still like wanting to talk to me related to the offer. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think it's interesting to hear that, right? So are you consistently running paid ads for FNMS or do you kind of uh, ebb and flow with like pushes of ev ads? 
So I lead with a lot of no cost content or free content or very, very inexpensive things that people can get their hands on that are related to what we teach. And then I try to create no cost or free content. That's probably equally as good as some people's paid content and just put out a large volume of that. Um, I'm very consistent. I don't think I've missed a single podcast episode in, I, I mean, since I started the podcast, rain or shine, me feeling good, not feeling good, travel, no travel. Retweet, uh, Dan, so, retweet. So being consistent with the podcast uh, is a huge tool for the brand. Um, but as far as that, just as far as advertising goes, what I think most people miss is they treat it like they're day trading stocks. And that is an incorrect way to approach building audience. It's really just an opportunity to give someone a digital handshake to potentially plant the seed of a long-term relationship. And you're you're looking at a much more delayed time horizon than most people would like to admit. Being consistent, just like showing up in your content creation and being consistent, if you are going to move into uh, any type of paid advertising, my opinion is you should view it like your content creation. You're making little daily deposits that are going to compound over time that eventually build your audience to where you can build rapport and like a deeper relationship with people. And then if they know, like, and trust you and you have compelling content related to your offer and marketing messaging and um, the appropriate avenues of bringing people into your circle, they'll convert and become a client. So I don't necessarily approach it as like, Hey, you're brand new to my ecosystem. Sign up for FNMS tomorrow. We don't do, we don't really do that. Uh, you'll only really begin to see that if you've seen my free content for a period of time with very specific, like if, if this was a, the, in the marketing and sales world, a popular term is funnel. So if someone's at the top of your funnel, they're new, right? And this is air quotes. If you're listening on audio, this is my Dr. Evil air quotes, the funnel. <laughs> so if someone's in your funnel, um, you know, they're, they're a little bit newer to your ecosystem and ideally in some capacity, they're moving towards you. Maybe they've given you their name. Maybe they've given you their email. Maybe they follow you on social media. Now there are specific things you can do to then, is this audience that you're renting or audience that you're owning? So if Mark Zuckerberg is in charge of the platform, I don't own that content that, uh, excuse me, that customer or that audience, they're not in my Rolodex. You know, I like to use my very, very old parents as an example. If you were building business decades ago, you had a Rolodex, you'd write someone's phone number down, maybe their address and maybe their fax number, because that was a thing before email. So coaches need to build their Rolodex. And so when you actually look at it from an audience acquisition perspective, most people post all this like top of funnel social media content and they don't bring people in any further. So most of what we're actually doing is just trying to get people to cross pollinate to consume podcasts, consume newsletters, come maybe come into a community. I don't really do paid ads for that, but coming into a community, maybe sending them a valuable resource. Uh, sharing some videos with them or bringing them into to other stages, right? And it's really more of it looking at it as like stages of conversion as opposed to just did they buy something or did they not buy something? So you make the consistent daily deposits largely to create brand awareness, build your Rolodex, and then over time, you share more valuable things that demonstrate your ability to solve that person's particular problem. And then if you have an offer, whether it's Taylor's offer or my offer, FNMS, the person's more likely to convert versus being what would be called in the marketing world, like cold audience. So we do have paid traffic, but it's 
a little bit more strategic and, and more from the perspective of how can I build a relationship and build my Rolodex as a uh, brand to where most people listen to a lot of free stuff. And I'll even tell them, I'm like, if you haven't listened to the podcast, if you haven't downloaded like at least a dozen episodes, if you haven't consumed a workshop or follow me on Instagram, like you shouldn't like, don't like come back later, like go, go like learn everything you can from that because I've also just learned that those people are going to be better clients um, in the long in the long haul. So I'm okay to to do that, but it's very hard to shift out of that mindset because most people get to that place. And if you're coming from a place of scarcity, you want that day trade. Oh, I spent ten dollars on Facebook. I need to get a hundred dollars back, or I'm expecting like a thousand dollar client package tomorrow, and that's not really um, not really how it works. I feel like you're sitting on a lot of ideas, thoughts, and comments. Well, so you know, you are very long winded and I don't want to interrupt you because you have a lot of great things, but I'm like, damn that and that and that don't forget it, Taylor and that, but yeah, like one thing I want to hit on is volume, right? Like there's so much volume. So a lot of coaches that I work with think that paid advertisement is the end all be all like, that's it. That's the golden ticket. Right. And like, I'm open with, with saying that I built a seven figure business totally organically, like in the DMS, right. You know, and I know people cringe at that and whatever, but, um, I didn't do cold messages, but cold to close on average is two months. And that's on average. Doesn't mean there's not outliers, people that take a year or whatever, but you know, you mentioned ingesting podcast. You also mentioned holding your ground and not watering down your offer, um, or acting out of scarcity because somebody can pay you. I actually just wrote a, um, a caption the other day about how just because somebody can pay me to be in my mastermind doesn't mean I will let them in because they need FCA first or something like that. Right. And so I'm the same way. Like my podcast is so much selling for me. My workshops do so much selling for me. So if you are, you know, putting out a new offer or even just struggling to sell your current offer, right. And you don't have lead magnets or a podcast or just something to get them introduced to your coaching style, going live more, more volume on the content front, right? Like I'm sure you can attest to this, but I give away so much shit for free. Like oh, for sure. Yeah. So I, mean, I knew shit. as soon as I was saying that I was like, Taylor and I literally like we're posting all the time and <laughs> people need to consume. And, and but part of it though, is like, I want to see if anyone's got some skin in the game, like, that shows me that you care, that you're learning, you're digesting things, you're taking your personal development into your own hands, which then allows me, I can take that person so much further than the person that expects me to do everything for them, right? So it's like, if you have some skin in the game, I'll pull you, like, I will do everything I can to help you if you're trying and you're doing your best, like, I will meet your effort and like, I will do everything I can to make sure you're successful. But if you haven't at least started uh, a little bit on your own and done within what's in your locus of control, it's very, very hard to to fully serve that person or help them or for them even to feel as though you're you're fully helping them, even though you are, right? Because they haven't taken initiative on their own side to meet you, whether it's halfway or whatever arbitrary percentage you want to use. It just shows that people will take initiative and there's like deliberate intentional effort that they're exerting um, towards their growth, which I think is super important. So we use a combination of organic and pay and and also Taylor, like we're very similar in the sense that I built FNMS mostly just organic and and podcast, which is organic. So really, Instagram it was just a couple channels: Instagram, podcast, and some email, right? And a little bit of community yeah. dash of that sprinkled in um, as like your toppings. So those were kind of the core three to four things. And then you just have to look at if you don't have your shit together, paid ads are just like a magnifying glass on your current 
brand and business. So you got to figure out your offer and your organic because if you don't know what you're saying in your organic or you don't know what you're teaching or you can't provide value in organic, you're just paid ads just magnifies the amount of eyeballs that are on there and the degree to which people are seeing you. It's a vol like Taylor said, it's a volume thing. So just remembering like it's not the silver bullet. It's not the magic thing that's going to save your business. It's bringing more attention. You're basically taking your boat out into bigger waves in the ocean and you need to make sure your boat can actually handle that um, and that you have strategies to actually like nurture those people and still build relationship to a degree, um, which is why, you know, I think we've both done certain things related to brand and marketing the way that we do. So I think we're actually pretty aligned and like very similar in that sense. Um, I just view it as a way to enhance things and stay top of mind, right? Like we literally will spend money to just show people free stuff, just like how you give out free content all the time. Not only do we post free content all the time, not only do I post free podcasts all the time, but I will give out more free stuff on top of that, whether it's a checklist or video series or training, or like you said, your workshops, those things are then magnified through um, advertising, right? To create a little bit of uh, kind of that digital handshake effect, uh, if you will. So that's kind of uh, where I approach it. And then I allow my organic to then piggyback on top of that to create a degree of like additional presence. But I think people have the wrong mistake of like, if you're looking at ads as like a silver bullet for your business and you haven't actually addressed the core issues inside your business, you're really just uh, potentially, and it's not fueling the fire in a good way, right? You're just bringing, bringing more attention and kind of magnifying some of the problems that may already exist. Yes, ads do not cover up vague marketing, right? Not to mention if you're avoiding the DMs and running the show by yourself, what are you gonna do when leads increase, right? Eyeballs increase, right? It's a nightmare. Um, so I'm curious to know like what FAQs you might have on like course build out in general or building that second offer. In terms of what people may ask me in terms yeah, what of people have asked you commonly asked questions about courses. I mean, I've got a few, but I, I wanted to let you, I, I think you did a really good job of like framing the episode with a kind of a strong foundation and the important aspects that I, I don't want it to be overlooked is we both talked a lot about consumer behavior, market research, client conversations, and a little bit of due diligence. And a lot of times the questions that people have for me are really like, they need to go ask those questions to their clients and their audience. So the FAQs are often like, serving as a mirror to help them go do some work that they need to do in their own direction. Um, otherwise, I mean, aside from the consumer behavior aspect, I mean, maybe FAQs on like software. I, I think maybe it's not so much an FAQ as like a general sentiment as people worry far too much about the software and passive income and pre-recorded modules when really they should be focused on how can I use this as a tool or a vehicle to amplify the current transformation that I provide and potentially have the bandwidth to work with more people while still providing a very similar, if not greater value? Um, all too often, the the questions that I get from an FAQ perspective are like, oh, like, where do I, I post my trainings and should I do this or should I do that? And it's, it's very... Um, they worry a lot about like tactics versus the big picture of being clear on the problem you're solving, someone you're, who you're serving, and then delivering it in a way that really just reverse engineers your best transformations and providing some additional touch points or 
you could even look at a course as a way to just like provide more value to your current one-on-one clients. You know, a, a lot of people view courses as like this escape from your one-on-one coaching. Well, if you viewed it as a way to enhance the, the value you provide or potentially like maybe there's a synergy there or they they can cross-pollinate to a degree, um, I think there's a lot of great options. But I, I would say the biggest FAQs are like people worry far too much about software yeah. systems, things like that. And like they haven't even figured out you're worried about where you're going to post the videos. You don't even know what you're teaching yet or who, or who you're helping or do you even have interest in the offer to begin with, like the research stuff that we talked about? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think I do get quite a few granular questions before anything ever happens, right? Like, how will I launch this? It's like, what the hell's the idea? But the, the number one question I get asked all the time, and it's really like a doubt thing, but how the hell am I going to sell something that's thousands of dollars when I'm already struggling to sell $400 a month coaching. That is the number one question that I get. And it's a fair question. Uh, I think a lot of business comes back to like your scaling self-trust and self-belief. So if you are struggling a little bit with your current conversions, it's natural for that to come up. But that's why I think it's important. You know, we talk so much about consumer behavior and research and market research and client conversations today. It's like, you need to figure out how to provide that equivalent of value or how can you provide a transformation or an experience that someone truly wants to do and viewing it less as like, well, you know, I need X amount of people or who's going to, will people actually pay that much? Or what will we know in the industry around you? Like people are already doing that, right? It's just, will they actually do it for your particular product? And largely what's going to determine that is, does this help? save them some, you know, time, frustration, headaches, obstacles, like, does it facilitate or is there some degree of ease that happens because they're working with you? Is it because the community is going to provide these connections for them? Um, you know, will people, the will people actually pay that much question is really more of a combination or reflection of your confidence and or self-doubt combined with not spending enough time on like the meat and potatoes of the actual offer, because there are ways to cement the offer and, and really add valuable components. Like how can, the better question is how can I make it a no brainer? Right. Or if I were to go through this, or if I, if I was given, if a client gave you a hundred thousand dollars, what is every single thing you would do for that person to give them like the best possible experience, right? So it's a little bit of like, just kind of flip it on its head. And there's other ways to ask that question, right? Like I've heard it, um, heard someone say it as like, okay, if this was your last customer and like your entire business relied on this, like how would you like serve that customer, right? Brutal. Start to, it's brutal, but it that's, makes that's you brutal. think. Yeah. If you think from a different perspective, like a lot of it is the questions we're asking. So as business owners, if we can get out of that scarcity, will people actually pay that much? Well, it's like, what if they'll actually pay way more and you're not even thinking about it? You know, oh, it's yeah. so well, I mean, it, you and I both raised our rates multiple times, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. But I will, I will say though, that was only, but we only do that if I can figure out a way to actually provide a greater degree of value to where it's actually worth it. Or we're injecting something into the experience that was not there before. Or there's a demand issue where like, I can't, I literally am, am having the problem of like, okay, we're having to actually manage the roster here as well. And it's also a degree, we know that when people make an investment or they pay, they pay more attention, they get a better transformation, they get a better result. And we've seen layers of um, coaching success that parallels some of the reinvestment that we've made in the program, as well as that a lot of the 
increments in terms of the quote unquote price point or investment were related to adding, adding live support, adding instructors, adding done for you resources, lengthening the amount of mentorship that you get or the amount of touch points that you get on a given week. So I, I think we have to, the word pay and price, it's like, yes, there's a financial exchange, there's currency, but this is really where I think like your money mindset is important and looking at currency as there's like an energetic component to that and just how people will pay for health and fitness coaching to achieve a result of fat loss or improving their health or energy levels or well-being. The same is true related to courses and business, but we have to figure out what, what the equivalent is, right? And a lot of times we don't spend enough time actually figuring that out and try to flip your questions on their head, ask the opposite question, ask, you know, some of those more challenging uh, intellectual exercises to like force yourself into situations where you start to look at different dimensions from a customer's perspective, put yourself in different shoes, put, be in a different business for a second. Um, think about your most successful people, your least successful people. Okay. If someone is paying $400 from, for one-on-one -on -one coaching, what is working about that? Like what is great about why do people want to pay $400 for coaching versus 250 versus 500 versus like, you've got your winning recipe and it's all about kind of, uh, you know, finding that and, and having different iterations of that. So the, will people pay that much question? It's really like, yeah. I mean, there's people in the world who literally pay like millions of dollars. Like there was a, there was an auction. Uh, I forget where it was. There was an auction where someone literally paid like millions of dollars for like a specific license plate. So if people will pay that for a license plate, like you can't get someone to spend a couple thousand dollars on something that may be a valuable life-changing transformation tool for them. I think you can make it happen. I know Taylor thinks you can make it happen too. It's just kind of like shifting your perspective. Well, it's messaging, right? I mean, similar to your auction thought process. I always say like, if, if I told somebody I would give them a million dollars, if they gave me 25,000, like they would find a way to give me $25,000, right? Like I think that people that are not investing, they're still investing in other things. And again, that goes back to messaging, which you and I could talk about a million a million different ways. But yeah, I mean, my whole goal of this podcast with you, right, was to just give kind of an overview of the course flow, the course structure, development, thinking of the idea. And um, just because a lot of my clients are really wanting to go that course route versus having a ton of assistant coaches and things like that, which I, I love a good course build out, obviously, because I do it. So I'm biased, but I know you do too. And that's become, because uh, that's your only offer now, right? That's all you're selling. It's definitely our uh, like kind of main bread and butter sort of thing. Uh, to quote, remember the Titans where Denzel says, split beer works like Novocaine, run it every time. Uh, we very much have, you gotta, you gotta love Denzel and remember the Titans. It's like very important part of my childhood. So it has been our main thing for a really long time. We do have some, some elements that tie into that or related to that or peripheral offers that may build off of it. But that is definitely what we're known for and something where we spend a lot of our time, attention and resources. Awesome. Cool. Sam, anything else? I'm going to link obviously how to get in touch with you in the show notes, but anything else I didn't cover? Uh, no, I appreciated the conversation. I'm Sam Miller Science on every platform. Website is also sammillerscience.com. Um, I will probably share some excerpts of this as well. Cause I feel like it was a super solid conversation with Taylor. Uh, that's pretty much it. And hopefully you guys learned something. Go build was, a course. <laughs> this was loaded. This was loaded. Yeah. Just, I hope they were taking notes because I feel like there's a lot, this would have saved me a lot of time. I don't know about you, Taylor. It would have saved me a lot of time. Saved me a lot yes. of time. A lot so of headache. Having that perspective. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Taylor. 
I want to give you a virtual high five for finishing another episode of the Taylor DeHaze podcast. Love the episode, share it and tag me on Instagram. Have a question? My DMs are always open. Until next time, bye y'all.